It's Thursday, April 11th, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we invite very honored Prater Sipma to discuss his recent expedition to Pluto's cave north of Mount Shasta. This is the same lava tube cavern complex that we used as a location in our uh, 2007 science fiction film, Beyond Lemuria. It is considered a spiritual location and has been used for shamanic visionary retreats. It has also been connected with the legend of J.C. Brown's lost Lemurian treasure, which we'll discuss in some detail. We discussed the cave on our broadcast, Mystical Mount Shasta, in January, on January 13th, 2011, which you can still access. So join us as we once more enter the underworld and share mystical experiences. Uh, I'll introduce very uh, um, honored Frater Sithmeth uh, right after we get uh, done with this uh, this little introduction. Every kid should have a cave as a secret hideout. I had one when I was seven years old, but it was in the dark end of my grandfather's cellar. I think this childhood fascination with caves harkens back to the Stone Age, when we called ourselves cavemen. And interestingly enough, the Stone Age of the cavemen was also the origin of the magician and the shaman and ceremonial magic. The shaman was also the first astrologer, for Stone Age shamans observed that the moon and the stars and the planets rose from underground beneath the horizon at sunset and returned to the underworld at dawn. And it was for this reason that they went deep into the caverns to experience their visions and their soul travel to other worlds, which they imagined to be either heavenly or subterranean. Now this psychodynamic made its way into the Kabbalah, with the three-layer concept of the deep subconscious, the Nepesh, the rational mind, the Ruach, and the higher or celestial self, the Nekimah, which seems to have influenced the Christian, the Christian psychophilosopher Carl Jung more than the Jew Sigmund Freud. However, in mythology, the overworld remained in the underworld until Hercules pulled Cerebrus, the guard dog of hell, up out of the cavern. And after that, we no longer had to go down in order to go up. And yet, so-called primitive shamans still go into caves to have their visions. And in 2005, we met one of them coming out of Pluto's cave after several days of fasting, of a fasting vigil in the, in the darkness. And he was not a Native American, but he was a subculture uh, fellow, well, you know, what we used to call hippies. He was, a, he was a Native American wannabe following a Native American tradition. Nonetheless, he had a meaningful experience. And this was, this uh, Pluto's Cave was our first location tour, was on our first location tour in Mount Shasta area in preparation for the forthcoming film. Now, Beyond Lemuria was filmed in, uh, in, in 2006, and it was released in 2007. Now, on this first visit, I had my significant spiritual uh, vision up on the mountain the day before we went, uh, we met the shamanic apprentice at, at Pluto. Now, Pluto's cave, or cavern, is a mile-long lava tube in the volcanic badlands north of Mount Shasta. It was a perfect location for our science fiction film, and it became the demon-haunted Satan's Cavern in the movie. We spent the whole first shooting day at Pluto disinfecting the swallow guano and spray-painting over the graffiti in the cathedral chamber near the entrance. And in many areas along the first half mile of the cave roof had fallen in, creating a series of skylights. Now, this saved us uh, from the expense and trouble of artificial lighting, and as you will see when you watch the film. I might note that we released Beyond Lemuria again in 2014 in a second edition, which is now available from Amazon.com. But you must order the DVD, otherwise you will miss the new material. 
Now, aside from the Indian legends of giant creatures who squeezed people to death inhabiting Pluto, and the more recent legend of J.C. Brown his lost Lemurian treasure cave in the Mount Shasta area, we worked these into our screenplay. Our film inspired researcher Stephen Sindoni to track down the mysterious J.C. Brown story, which we'll get into later. We followed our version of the treasure map in Pluto's cave, adding a dragon skull to the folklore. We did, uh, we did take a, an elf, hidden world receiver, back into, Pluto, back into Pluto, but all we managed to get was, was bat squeaks. However, a very honored printer, Sithmith, took his geomancy outfit into the back end of Pluto and got some very interesting results. And I'd also like to mention our hermetic episode, uh, uh, Shamanic Drumming, with very honored Prater Heracles on April 7, 2016. We also mentioned Michael Harner's excellent book, Cave and Cosmos, and I refer interested listeners to both this book and our broadcast. Okay, Max, tell us about your adventure and, and start from the beginning. Can you hear me, Clark? Yeah, I can we hear right. you. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, we, uh, my, uh, my uh, friend uh, uh, Mark Fred Boaz and I had been planning on doing a series of tours of the United States in various locations. And as per his suggestion, we started with Mount Shasta, uh, simply because of its relative proximity to us and uh, some of the interesting legends surrounding it, which you've already mentioned. Uh, so we... Uh, uh, traveled up there. It's quite a quite a distance, but it's a beautiful beautiful place. Uh, the mountain is in is you can see when you're there why people would consider it to be deeply spiritual and significant. It it, it is uh, a very um, how do I say uniquely featured mountain on the landscape when you get there. Uh, there are many mountains surrounding it, but Mount Shasta is sitting on its own like a lonely mountain. Um, just north of Reading and near near Shasta Town, of course, and Weed, which is um, just a town a little bit to the uh, on the north side of the mountain. And we had planned to do several things, uh, which was to go up the mountain as far as we could, which we did. And it wasn't very far this time of year, simply because when because was, the snow was so thick uh, and the the continuous cloud cover over the mountains or I think it may just have been a continuous evaporation of the snow line meant that the upper reaches of the mountain were perpetually bathed in this this cloud that manifests around the upper reaches of the mountain constantly it's, it's breathtaking and occasionally they'll part just enough so that you can see the very tip of the mountain several tips there's this um, one more rounded section and one sharper point and it's uh, quite breathtaking. We were able to get up as far as the ski slopes to um, look up and gaze into the, the mist of the mountain, and there were some brave people who were uh, trying to ski up there, but it, we weren't going to ski for this particular vacation. Did you get, um, this did visit. You get did you, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did you get up uh, on the Merritt Parkway, did you get up to uh, the ranger station at Bunny Flat? That's where they have the gate, and 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 and, and uh, at, at, at this time of year, they they clear the road usually up to up to the ranger station, and that's at Bunny Flat. So do you remember that? Uh, we got to the actual ski center, so the 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 area which you would drive to if you were going to go skiing. We wanted to just go. We knew we weren't going to go very far up the mountain, so we weren't terribly dedicated to getting too high on the mountain. We'd heard legends about that Native Americans in the surrounding areas consider going above the the snow line to be rather a sacred activity. So we were determined to get as, as up to the snow line at least, which we did. And um, it, was, it was wonderful up there. Other than that, so I'm not entirely certain what you mean when you say the ranger station. Uh, you might it might be nearby where we got up to, or it might be a little bit higher. I'm not sure, but we did get up to the. I think the I think the bunny flat is the ski slopes, isn't it? Is it not? Yeah, well, it, no, no, no. Not... Ski, well, actually, ski bowl is is uh, is where we ski bowl is where we went up to when we did the film, but that was in August, 
And and uh, as I recall, we went up there in in uh, around the same time of year in in in, in 2005, and and uh, uh, we got up to the ranger station and and at at Bunny Flat and and on the Mar Parkway and found a gate. They had a big gate, and they had a they had a 10 foot wall. Of, of, of snow that, that we were looking at, and and and, and uh, you know we were we we found out that 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 that, that we couldn't get, get that this that the road wouldn't be open until until July or August, you know. And so of course when we filmed, when we finally came back in 2006 to do the film, we we came back in in uh, in in the end of July, you know, in the beginning of August. So, uh, but ski bowl. Uh, uh, ski bowl is way up at the top, and I don't think you got up there that, that far. But, no. uh, but that, yeah, yeah, you didn't get up there that far. I, I, I suspect that you probably got up to Buddy Flat, but you, you didn't see the gate. You, you didn't run into a gate when you went up there. Uh, both you? sides of the road were rather piled high with snow. The roads leading up to just the ski slope had obviously been cleared quite industriously by, um, I assume, the regular snow removing machines because it was piled quite high on either side of the road and higher and higher as we got higher and higher as well so um we figured yeah. we were about as high as it was fairly Poss- easy to do possible i'm sure to get at that time of year. yeah yeah at that yeah, time of yeah. year i was as high as you could go okay so yeah. so uh but uh but uh you did try to get up the mountain but anyway uh uh, so Pluto's Cave, you know, is 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 uh, east of Weed, north of Mount uh, north of Mount the town of Mount Shasta and the mountain, and it's uh, and it's east of Weed, uh, and and it's about it's about 45 miles north of uh, the mountain peak, but it's part of the uh, it, it's part of the lava flow. Uh, Pluto's Cave yeah. is part of that nor- northern lava flow from Mount Shasta. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. You wanna tell us about uh, tell us about your, your Pluto adventure? Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I mention that, I wanted to say that uh, the day prior to Pluto's cave, we went to uh, Shasta Caverns, uh, which is a little bit south, which is south of Shasta. It's closer to Redding, I think, but it's it's actually yeah. on a lake that's sort of between Redding and Mount Shasta, um, and yeah. that's a limestone limestone cavern. Uh, we went through that uh, very the latest, very 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 breathtaking and beautiful area. This time it wasn't there was not that much snow around, but it was obviously uh, formed through tectonics of some description. It was quite breathtaking. Yes. The caverns themselves, and I mention this because the caverns themselves had a very very different energy than the Pluto's caves. Now, oh, yeah. I mean, they were formed very very differently, but. Um, Freda Boaz, who is actually a very, very skeptical person uh, for for a member of our order, um, even suggested that he felt inside the caves in the, the Shasta caverns that it was a very uh, almost like the cave had a, an energy of a nurturing kind of Gaia feeling to it, and we were kind of looking around and trying to see what we could see, feel what we could feel, and it, it just felt. It, it, the, the Shasta caverns had a very kind of nurturing, pure feel to them, and they were very nice. The limestone yeah. stalagmites and stalactites coated with iron uh, deposits as well, so they had this brown look to them for the most part, and iron deposits tend to be kind of resistant to some spiritual forces. So that was really fascinating to go there. And then when we went to Pluto's cavern and the distinct difference in energy there. And when we first arrived at uh, Pluto's cavern, taking the roads that you described, the first few little caves, the first one when we came off the path and there was one to the left and one to the right, they were, to to tell the truth, at first it seemed underwhelming because I thought, oh, is, is this it? Is this all that Pluto's cave has to show? But no, no, it was not. And the first cave to the left was absolutely, obviously used by animals a lot. It was filled with guano, and the smell of animal habitation was extraordinarily strong. Yeah, it took us a whole day. Just, just a, uh, we we had a case of of spray disinfectant to get to to get that guano. You know, you know they they talk about the swallows going back to Capistrano. 
Well, yeah, they go back to Capistrano, but that I, I think they, they they fly out of out of uh, out of Pluto's cave to go to Capistrano, <laughs> and they <laughs> and they leave a huge huge mountain of guano. So we uh, well, we were afraid people, you know, would, would uh, our our crew would breathe that and and, and our, our actors, and so we 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 uh, we bought a whole case full of and we we bought a whole case full of spray uh disinfectant and we we spent the whole day disinfecting the guano and then we bought a we bought another case of of of, of uh, gray and earth colored uh spray paint to, to get rid of the graffiti and i imagine i imagine when you went in there the the, the the graffiti you probably saw you probably saw some of our spray paint with that which which i imagine they have graffitied over it by now <laughs> Uh, oh, there was a lot of graffiti. I mean, graffiti, uh, graffiti, and footprints, and occasional remnants of obviously some form of firewood was pretty obvious all the way down to the very bottom. That as far as we could go, it, the graffiti did taper off a little bit towards the very deep areas that we went. But for the most part, that was one of the most consistent things. I think at one point I turned around to Mark and said, "Well, where there's graffiti." Then we can go deeper because there's, I mean, people have obviously been here before, so let's keep going. So, the first cave to the left, uh, when we first arrived, was a large, obvious habitation for many animals, including people. Not necessarily they habitate there, but they certainly visit and have plenty of bush, plenty of fires, and uh, plenty of um, like bonfires and, and things. And then to the right, the, the caves are very interesting because the where you access them from, they are obviously the access points for the remnants of uh, very large cave-ins, such that there is usually a mound that's covered with some vegetation, and then either side of the mound, there will be an access to some caverns. So, we went over the first little hill and went down into the, the first little cavern, which went on for a little way, and there was another hill covered with some vegetation, which we climbed up and then down the other side. It was a bit of a, it's kind of like a surprise. And this, this maintained its, its, uh, the case all the way down into the depths of the cavern, where even in the deepest parts of Pluto's cave, there were regular massive mounds of uh, boulders, which would obstruct view to the deeper parts of the passage that one would have to scale in order to even see if the passage continued afterwards, which it regularly did, and was breathtaking and daunting each time you would surmount the mound of rubble to gaze down into this uh, carrion blackness that would yawn before you, which was intimidating and breathtaking and amazing at the same time. The... um, after I think it was there was a longer stretch of cave which had a nice natural skylight uh, which had obviously been a smaller cave in this this other cave we we went we when we arrived there was a cave to the left we went through the cave to the right and then there was a hill and we uh, came, went over that and there was another cave and I and that was a slightly longer one uh, with a natural skylight and when we went through that we were kind of I had a, a little pendulum with me and I was attempting to locate any kind of uh, energetic or spiritual activity that I could find. And there was this sensation of something in that cave, something a little smaller, a little bit more humanoid even, uh, that both of us could kind of detect. But it wasn't very intimidating. It was just a slight feeling of something lingering around this slightly shorter cave with this natural skylight. And I don't know, obviously people visited it more often. When we came back out of the depths of the earth, there were a few people who were obviously having a good time and testing out their sound equipment in that particular part of the cave. So it was regularly visited. But when we reached uh, the end of that little one, there's quite a high hill. And um, at first I had thought, well, maybe that's, that's all of Pluto's cavern. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's not much more of it. Maybe there's just these few little sections of a lava tunnel. And then I said, well, you know, let's go on over this hill and see if there is more. So we walked up over this hill and the trees kind of parted in this interesting, almost ritualistic fashion as we descended down this slope. And there was this another great cavern yawning before us. And when we went through that, it was longer and more intimidating. And then there was one final external section where, again, we, when we got to this, it was 
lot more interesting. There was the sense of a small sense of almost foreboding, and crows started to gather a little bit and caw, and the silence was amazing. And we came over that hill again, covered with all kinds of interesting brown weeds, and we or branches and trees. We rounded that, and then there was just this this cave that just yawned in front of us that just seemed to go down. And we thought, well, maybe this is another short little tunnel, but we went down and it, it just kept going. Um, we would go down and we had to use torches. And if anyone thinks of visiting these places, several things you need to know. You need to bring torches, natural light, as if you ask anyone about the caves, they'll tell you. And the other thing is you should probably be young and fit or at least just very nimble because you're going to need to channel your inner mountain goat at various parts inside these tunnels in order to uh, traverse the distances of boulders that just litter the entirety of the floor. Boulders mixed with some strange gray powder that sort of like this strange moon dust that also litters the floor in between short damp piles of obviously uh, recent guano though we only saw one bat throughout the entirety of our venture down into the cave a very cute little thing by I would say Australian comparison uh, a tiny little bat which seemed more annoyed by the fact that we were shining lights on it than anything else and we let it go back to its evident rest several uh, uh, several uh, uh, things about Pluto that we, we, we need to mention. Uh, everybody talks about the owl, the giant owl that lives there, and we and we, we did we, we do I do remember we ran the owl out one time. the owl flew out uh, and, and uh, quite a few people talk about the owl that lives there and it's a, it's a big owl. Uh, okay well let me let me go in and, and talk about uh, Brown's treasure here while, while you know and then just hang on. Okay, go on. Uh, the leading character in the following tale is a baffling man by the name of J.C. Brown. I'm reading from uh, uh, from the author Emil Frank uh, in, 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 in his book on, uh, on hidden treasures in Mount Shasta. Uh, J.C. Brown, who in 1904 was employed with the Lord Cowdery Mining Company of London, England, and was hired to prospect for precious metals in this gold-bearing region. And while there, he ran in, uh, in into a section of rock on the face of the cliff, which didn't seem to match the surrounding formation. And while examining this curious stone, he noticed it blocked the entrance to what appeared to be a cave. And Brown, a geologist, but the entire scene was unnatural. He began to dig uh, out the mouth of the cave, which was full of debris and vegetation, and he began to see that it was not a small cave, and after much digging, found himself in a tunnel which curved downward into the mountain, and equipped with lanterns and a miner's paraphernalia, he set out to explore. Uh, three miles from the mouth of the tunnel, I said, he said, I struck a cross-section containing gold-bearing ore, and further back I struck another cross-section where an ancient race apparently had mined copper. And uh, He believed the other cross-sections outcropped on some other part of the mountain, and the decline continued, and approximately 11 miles inside the mountain, he found what he called the village. He discovered two rooms filled with copper and gold ingots, uh, and gold tablets about three by four inches in concave so that one laid it inside the other. The rooms were literally full of these plates, all inscribed neatly. And that's not all he found. He, the, the walls were lined with tempered copper and hung with shields and wall pieces made of gold. Uh, some of these golden plates he found were engraved with certain drawings and hieroglyphics. And these were of tempered copper. And they were spears and other objects made of gold. Rooms opened up into other chambers, which appeared to be in a, in a place of worship. In addition, there were 13 statues made of copper and gold and a large sun design from which protruded golden streamers. The way the objects were strewn about, he had the feeling the occupants of the underground village had uh, left on the spur of the moment. And then he came up uh, upon a macabre scene in one chamber. Uh, he counted 27 skeletons, the smallest of which was six was uh, six feet six inches, and the largest stretching out more than 10 feet. 
Two of the bodies were mummified, each clad in colorful, ornate robes. Brown spent days exploring, studying the hieroglyphics and indelibly imprinting them in his mind. He was excited about this great archaeological find and decided to leave the tunnel and its contents exactly as he had found them. He would return. But first, he cleverly concealed the entrance to the tunnel and marked uh, on his map exactly where it was on the mountain. The next three decades, those spanning 1904 to 1934, Brown's activities seem to be shrouded in mystery, but it is known that he studied the literature and philosophy pertaining to the lost continent of Mu and the lost Lemurian civilization. Among other uh, lore of prehistoric races, years of study and comparison of the hieroglyphics and pictographs he had found in the tunnel convinced him that they were indeed records of the Lemurian race. And so, after 30 long years, Brown surfaced. He noticed that the golden artifacts were still hanging untouched in the cavern in the mountain, and the glory of these Lemurians should be shared with others. In 1934, at the age of 79, Brown appeared in Stockton, California. His idea was to organize a group of people interested in accompanying him at his expense to Mount Shasta. And once there, they would explore further the ancient tunnel he had found in 1904. Eighty eager Stockton residents, including a newspaper man, an editor, and a museum curator, a retired printer, several scientists, and other solid citizens formed a group to investigate the tunnel with J.C. Brown. They met nightly for six weeks to plan the expedition and also listened to Brown's fabulous tales of lost continents, hieroglyphics, and enticing descriptions of the treasure, which seemed to be just within their grasp. Some even gave up their jobs and sold much of their personal during these six weeks, so certain they were that their lives would be altered and enriched by their remarkable discoveries. The editor and the curator questioned Brown closely, going uh, over and over the details of his bizarre story. Brown disclosed that he had spent much of his life and his previous 30 years searching for ancient records pertaining to the Lemurians, and his mental pictures of the hieroglyphics in the tunnel village had convinced him that he had found the lost link to the, to the story of their civilization. And he told them that he believed the golden antiquities he had found were those of the Lemurians or their descendants. Brown even promised to provide a yacht to transport the group as far north as they could go by water. They would leave on June 19th at 1 p.m. The day dawned clear and beautiful, and, and 80 Stockton citizens were waiting at the designated time for their leader to appear. They had met the evening before in order to consummate the final details, after which J.C. Brown bid them adieu until the next afternoon. However, Brown was never seen by the group again, and what had happened to him is anybody's guess. The members of the group feared for his life. He had mentioned that he had once been kidnapped and barely escaped with his life. They called in the Stockton police, but no trace of the man was found. He had completely disappeared. But the 80 persons who waited in vain for him uh, that June day believed the authenticity of his story, and they believed in the existence of the vast tunnel in Mount Shasta filled with golden artifacts. Unfortunately, J.C. Brown had never revealed the exact location of the secret tunnel in the mountain, and it's highly probable that these treasures of a prehistoric era will never be delight uh, the eyes of another human. Wreathed in clouds and mists and sealed uh, throughout the ages in ice and snow, Mount Shasta keeps her secrets well. Now, that's that's essentially the legend of J.C. Brown. But we we went ahead and and, and uh, used a version of that in Beyond Lemuria. And after and when our film came out, uh, this inspired a researcher in, from New York by the name of Stephen Sindoni, uh, who really really dug it. He got fascinated by this by this Brown uh, this legend of Brown's treasure, and he really dug in. He he really 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 researched this, and he found out who J.C. Brown really was. J.C. Brown was really John Benjamin Bodie uh, and and Lord uh, Lord Cowder uh, uh, Cowdery. 
uh, did have his mining company, and Bodie did work for him. And Bodie was a, was a geologist and a civil engineer, very highly, highly well-educated and highly respected. And he and Cowdery, uh, whose name was Pearson, and that's the, 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 the spelled differently than the Pearson in Dweller on Two Planets, which which would have been suspicious of, suspicious otherwise. But uh, we we'd mount we'd mount Pearson, uh, who was Lord Cowdery and his British mining company. And the two of these these guys worked together. But, uh, and, and, uh, and Stephen Sindoni, and by the way, he's got a wonderful video on this, uh, which you can, you can watch on, on, uh, on uh, YouTube. And uh, uh, Stephen Sindoni researched up, researched this, and she found out that these, that Cowdery and, and uh, Bodie, uh, J.C. Brown, had both, Gone down to Mexico and and had established companies and 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 were doing mining operations down in Mexico, and this is before the revolution and the continent. And somehow or other, they managed to keep this up even during the Mexican Revolution. And by uh, by the 1920s, they finally left Mexico and came back into in, into California. Condry owned a great deal of land uh, up in the Shasta area, and. Uh, uh, then, but Brown, uh, well, uh, Benjamin Bodie disappeared, and and uh, it wasn't until just before 19, 1934, Cowdery had died. Cowdery died about four years before Bode, uh, before uh, Bodie reappeared as J. C. Brown, and Bodie he reappeared, claimed that he had been uh, kidnapped and whatever. And and uh, suffered amnesia. I claim he suffered amnesia and took the name. So the name J. C. Brown was was a, was a, a name he assumed. He didn't even apparently according to him. He didn't even know who he was. But uh, he didn't know. Uh, he he did not uh, tell the people in Stockton that he he uh, he was as far as they were concerned. He was J. C. Brown. Now he never took and this he never took any money. So this was if this was a if this was a hoax that he was perpetrating, he certainly didn't profit from it because he was he claimed to be a wealthy man. He claimed he was going to sponsor the whole expedition. He never took any money that anybody from anybody in the Stockton area, and and uh, and he just disappeared. And uh, and so you know as I say, Stephen. Uh, so not only did Stephen Sindoni. Uh, research all of this in, in the New York uh, Public Library and 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 tracked the tracked all of this down. But he came out and walked the ground around Mount Shasta, and and I think maybe he has found. Maybe it looks like he may have found the actual cave uh, at the at the foot of Mount Shasta that Brown uh, that Brown had had gone into. Uh, and what it what it is 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 it's a it's a it's a great big natural lava tube drain pipe that the that that the, the, the melting snow on the top of Mount Shasta comes down, and this is on the Dunsmere. This is on the south side of the mountain, whereas Pluto's cave is up on the north side. But this is a lava tube going down down on the south side. Down toward Dunsmuir, which is which is a little south of Mount Shasta, and and this lava tube acts like a drain pipe for melting snow, and it uh, apparently it's still used today uh, to pump to to uh, supply Duns Dunsmuir with water, and and uh, but there's some very interesting rock formations uh, where the where these these entrances to these tubes are obviously some of them have been have been sealed up. And and of course also then, then there's the the natural drain area uh, and and, uh, and Stephen wasn't able to get in there uh, but he does show some very interesting uh, photographs of the side of, of of the hill and shows these doors so we all you know, take a, those of you who are interested in Brown's treasure uh, you know the Brown story. Uh, uh, take a look at uh, Stephen Sindoni's uh, video and on on J. C. Brown. And that that is fascinating. And uh, but uh, you know we 
a lot of people thought Brown Brown uh, Brown's uh, treasure was in Pluto's cave. No, it wasn't. But but it, but it, uh, the uh, the story is is fascinating nonetheless. Uh, and uh, and of course uh, we're uh, in our film, you know, uh, Beyond Lemuria. We naturally were dealing with the uh, with Lemurian legend and Brown and J. C. Brown's story is certainly part of that. Uh, you know, Max, uh, you guys, uh, you, you did you did a geomatic divination back in there. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, the first thing I suppose I should say with a very heavy heart is that we did not discover gold and doubloons and 10-foot high skeletons. After all, I'm sure they probably would have been pillaged by the first few people to graffiti the depths of Pluto's cave. But what we did find was, I think, almost more tantalizing in a way. Um, We descended down the cavernous corridors um, that would with one and when you glaze down into the darkness the passage would curve slightly usually to the left revealing just another mound off in the distance and you could never quite be sure if that was the final stop on the journey we had to have descended down that passageway for about a mile at least a mile i think though it felt longer going downward simply because the journey was broken up between these massive boulder mounds and yes if you go down there you can easily slip between a few very sharp rocks and break your legs if you are not spry enough to jump from ledge to ledge and navigate your way around these rocky slides but there were a few parts where myself and uh Freda Boaz would find ourselves um with a, I say I I was a little bit more of a uh, crazy lemming as opposed to my more cautious colleague who would sometimes linger back as I would go off in you know, the tunnel to see if it continued on, and I would come back and um, usually reveal that it did not. But when we finally got as far down as we could, well, actually before we got there, there was a section of the cave which was absolutely distinct to us. It was a where the pile had reached towards the roof. And this cavern is incredible. This great dome of a roof covered with strange black stains. As we got closer to it, we went through this one section where suddenly, for no explicable reason, it felt as though we had just stepped outside into the sun. We were suddenly walking outside. Now, there was no skylight. It was entirely just the light of our own torches. But it wasn't that. It wasn't the light level. It felt like this strange sun-like warmth was suddenly bathing both of us. I mean, I felt this, and I turned around, and I, I spoke to Fred Boas and, and said, hey, uh, this is what I experienced. And he, even with all this skepticism, he too reported that absolutely there's this feeling as though we're outside, not just outside, he said, but it feels like we're standing in a grassy field beneath the sun. And that was, it was just bizarre. Wonderful. Great feeling. I think, but this was let me, let me so say, far let me down say this, the do, you, do, you think, do you think possibly uh, you found an interdimensional doorway? Well, I'm not sure. I actually think I would be more inclined to say that it was more consistent with what we picked up on the geomantic readings, which is, I think, why I have to mention it beforehand. Because when we finally got as far down as we could, and to be fair, I could have tried to squeeze through a few more small crevices to see if it went further, but that at this point, without a hard hat, I mean, I was wearing a hat, but it wasn't a hard hat, Um, and it would have been, if there had have been even the slightest shift in the stones, I would not be here talking about it. Uh, So I was a little more cautious in that final area where there was little more than a crawling space to see, and I was pretty damn sure that that crawl space would not lead to more cavern. So when we finally got as far down as we could, I looked to Fred Boaz and I told him, all right, turn off your light now. And at first he looked back to me and with, in, in, with incredulity in his eyes, and he said, are you insane? I said, no, no, we should experience the utter darkness of the cave. We should turn our lights off. 
so we did. And in that pitch blackness, the feeling was just this deep warmth of the tunnel. There was We could have been anywhere at that point. The blackness was so complete that if we'd switched our lights on and we were suddenly back in our hotel, it would have seemed almost normal. It just seemed like we could be anywhere. It wasn't too hot or too cold. It was just this wonderful underground feeling. And as we listened, we could hear this deep hum or rumble beneath the ground. And we almost felt as though it was almost sentient. I know that seems strange, but that was the feeling that we both had. It was this almost sentient hum, this like a rumble of a voice deep underground. Dramatic, yes, but this was the feeling we had. We switched our lights back on, and uh, I had already packed uh, Freda Boaz's uh, backpack full of many of our, uh, our, our orders' um, portable equipment, all of the various little things. So I almost had a full temple in his backpack. But I brought out just a few little things, cleared a small area for rolling the geomantic dice. And the way that I use the dice in particular is such that one of the eight, so both dice, as we've spoken, I'm sure we've spoken about before many times, both dice have eight sides to them. On each of the dice is a, oh, sorry, yeah, yes. On each of the faces of these two dice is a geomantic symbol. There being eight on one dice, eight on the other, for the total of 16. And on the dice that I have, uh, each dice has a balance of the planetary on one dice, one of the symbols of each of the planets, and on the other dice, the same thing, of course, including the, um, the two dragon's head and dragon's tails at the end there for the eighth. And we took out these dice, cleared an area, and in my best booming voice, I performed a bornless one ritual, after which the atmosphere definitely took on a much more electric state. Uh, Freda Boas commented that he felt as though the rocks had suddenly sprung alive, that there was something paying attention to what we were doing. So I stopped and summoning the earth spirits as best as I could to answer the questions with the, uh, the dice as I had them. I wanted to know the nature of the spirit I was talking to. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if when I rolled these dice, both symbols definitely indicated only one planet. And I thought, well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? But it seems very unlikely. But the very first roll was Fortuna Minor and Fortuna Major, both of which are solar symbols. They are the two solar symbols in the geomantic, um, you could say, lexicon, which was interesting. It was compelling in that it was definitely a planetary answer, but it was interesting in that what we were feeling deep beneath the Earth was not solar. It didn't make sense why it would be solar. It was this deep, rumbling, primal titan energy that seemed to be distantly calling from beneath the Earth. And the solar images that we that we just conjured were not that. And yet they also reminded us of the short period of passage in which we had just passed through, where we felt as though we had been standing in the sun. It seemed rather strange, but... It may have also felt, felt for a moment that I think Fred Boas mentioned, well, we're both Leos, maybe it's addressing us. I thought, well, I suppose, an interesting proposition. And I decided, well, we need more clarity. So we picked the dice again, and I rolled again. And whilst the ground was not that even, and we had to re-roll a couple of times just to make sure that even a few faces were face up, the first truly compelling roll after that came up with the Saturnian symbol, Casa, which means imprisonment, and the symbol Rubius, which is a Martian symbol, meaning passion, red, fire, and wrath and anger, and all the elements associated with that kind of passionate, uh, directional, fiery energy. And the child of those two is the other Martian symbol, which is Poya, which is to say um, boy which is uh, uh, the masculine energy of, of, uh, of, again, fire and wrath. At least, 
my memory, these were the, the triad, the triune of symbols that we rolled such. Now, this seemed a little more compelling and a little more consistent with what we were experiencing. And the very next roll after that, again, also featured Casa. And the general message that we were getting was whatever it was that was deep beneath the earth that we were feeling was imprisoned there. That some ancient and terrible fiery darkness was deep and imprisoned beneath the earth. We had this impression that the spirits that were keeping it there were the solar spirits. The passage that we'd walked through was almost like the walls of an invisible prison, making sure that the deep and dark fire that lingered beneath the earth stayed beneath the earth and did not once again come up to wreak destruction. It didn't really occur to us until we started to venture back from this that the fire that had been spoken about was, to us it seemed obviously, the very spirit of the volcano itself that had once destroyed and brought fire and ruin and that even though the spirit itself didn't feel evil, even though the symbols were Saturnian and Martian respectively, it was more that that is just simply its nature, the nature of this thing that was trapped so far underground that seemed so interested by the fact that finally someone actually wanted to talk to it after so very long and it seemed deeply annoyed that we were even contemplating leaving it behind when we exited the cavern. And after a while, it seemed that uh, we, when we continued to roll, that it was time to stop communicating. Boaz being much more cautious than I, I wanted to take a sample of stone that could allow me to con reconnect with this thing once I exited the cave. And he convinced me otherwise, that I should rather leave everything as it is and not take with me things from there which could reconnect me with that fiery presence. Some ways I regret it. But I do often err on the side of caution when caution presents itself as a sensible option. Still, the final message that we asked was when we felt as though we should probably get out of here before this Titan's attention is turned too fully to us being there. And the role that we received was an absolute confirmation that we should get out of there. The triune of which is Populus Via and both of those again make via which is to say go definitely go so we left and we continued to climb out of the cavern and again passed through the strange area of sunlight that we felt and it then occurred to us that it was almost like the walls of a prison and uh, i suppose after that we just continued up to the very end of the cave as far as we could and met the few gentlemen on the way out who were testing out their sound equipment and continued back to the car, smudging ourselves to make sure we didn't keep anything that we didn't want from the cave. But it was uh, a compelling experience. And um, I say that both Fred Boaz and I, um, you could say we uh, have a fondness for the earth spirit Sorath, who is the spirit of the sun, uh, the earthbound spirit of the sun, who uh, I would say we may have actually been talking to and who told us to leave there as soon as we could. And that uh, that's, is the story of Pluto's Cave. Well, that 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 is wonderful, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, and and uh, uh, you know the Pluto's Cave and and Mount Shasta are, are just wonderful spiritual areas. Uh, and and uh, uh, I I I, I want to go up there again. Uh, uh, but but when I go up, I want to go. I I, I want to go uh, go in August when the when the you know you can get all the way up the mountain to the uh, you know and 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 also and then but but I have to go. We uh, have to visit Pluto again. I I, I even even uh, even though I'm 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 a little too old for for doing for going as far back in there as you as, as you did. But but I still I I can get I, I know I can get at least I can get down to the. I can get down to the cathedral and and uh, and uh, sail over the owl, you know. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> uh, this is this is just uh, you know, it's a wonderful experience. And also, um, I might mention that that uh, for those of you uh, who listened, uh, uh, are, are you know uh, who who are 
as fascinated as as as, as I as I know many of you were. Uh, that, that when you look at the, when you uh, when you look at the film uh, Beyond Liberia Second Edition and and you look and you see and you see inside Pluto you're going to realize uh, you know just how how mystical a place this really is. Also, as I said, I I, I recommend uh, Stephen Sandoni's uh, 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 video on 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 J C Brown and his treasure, and and uh, and and uh, Michael Harner's Cave in Cosmos. Uh, the, a book about shamanic uh, about uh, about shamanic retreats down into caves and 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 and, uh, and, and meeting your spirit animal and, and in fact you know your 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 vision your vision was was kind of like the Indians meeting their spirit animals down there they they uh, you know uh, they, they 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 report meeting a, a fiery buffalo. And that fiery buffalo, by the way, shows up in the in the TV show uh, uh, the TV show American Gods. We see that fiery buffalo oh, yeah. from 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 Michael Harner's cave. Uh, and and your your uh, your vision uh, relates kind of relates to the fiery buffalo. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much, Mary uh, uh, Honor Frederick and, and, uh, and Max, and for 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 revealing that. And and uh, and our best to Mark for you know going along and helping you with it. And uh, uh, next week uh, we'll be back again, same time, uh, eight o'clock on Thursday. And uh, and uh, and so until then, uh, good evening and good magic.